Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello? Can I ask who's calling? In December of 1994, Joanne Katranak told friends about a disturbing telephone call she received from someone she had never met. Stop calling here! Three days later, Joanne Katranak and her four-month-old son, Alex, disappeared without a trace. Telephone records could not identify the caller, but investigators suspected that the incident might hold the key to their disappearance. Joanne Katranak was a strikingly attractive young woman, a good student, and an outstanding athlete who had hoped to pursue a career in the fashion and beauty industry. She was very concerned about her appearance. She was very, very pretty. And, uh, I mean, she made sure every hair was in place before she even, like, took the garbage out. And uh, she was a very loving uh, child. Joanne was known to family and friends for her upbeat personality and optimism, qualities that were tested when her first marriage ended in a painful divorce. But in 1992, she met Andrew Katranak, a 38-year-old building contractor who was 14 years her senior. Despite the age difference, the two hit it off immediately. After a brief courtship, Andrew and Joanne married, and the couple moved into Andrew's home in the small working-class town of Catasauqua, Pennsylvania. Fifteen months later, Joanne gave birth to a healthy baby boy named Alex. Hello, Veronica? On December 15, 1994, Joanne Katranak called her mother-in-law at 1.15 in the afternoon. Joanne said she and the baby would be right over to pick her up so that the three of them could go Christmas shopping together. But Joanne and the baby never arrived. Andrew Katranak came home from work around 6.30. He was surprised to find that his wife and son were not home. The baby's diaper bag was missing. Joanne's purse was gone too. So were their winter coats. There was nothing out of place inside the home. No money or valuables were missing. The only thing Andrew noticed was that the hinge on the basement door was pried from the door jamb, and a telephone line in the basement had been cut. Four hours later at 10.30 that night, Andrew Katranak called police to report his wife and son missing. Relatives found Joanne's car down the street in the parking lot of a local bar, not in its usual location in the alley behind her house. Although it was locked, Joanne's keys were inside the car. On the back headrest were several strands of long, blonde hair, which did not belong to Joanne since she was brunette. On the distal end of the hairs were microscopic traces of dried blood. 
DNA analysis revealed that the blood was either from Joanne Katrinak or her son, Alex. Investigators also began to check out Andrew's alibi, that he had been at work all day on a construction site. He's the last person that sees her alive. The vast majority of homicides um, are committed by a person who the victim knows. Um, so you cannot just eliminate that by accepting that um, an individual says, well, I wasn't there. I was at work. They said that he must have something to do with the fact that she's disappeared. And the police actually said that, oh, she probably ran away with someone. In a million years, Joanne would never, never have run away. And um, I was quite angry um, with uh, the police that they accused Andy. Days passed, then weeks. And when the banks reported there had been no activity on Joanne Katrinak's credit cards, it was becoming painfully clear that Joanne and Alex had been the victims of foul play. Christmas passed. And so did New Year's of 1995, still with no sign of 26-year-old Joanne Katrinak or her infant son, Alex. The Katrinaks lived on a busy street across from a local bar. Neighbors said they saw nothing suspicious on the day of Joanne's disappearance, and police were skeptical that Joanne and her baby could have been abducted in broad daylight. But four months after they were reported missing, the worst fears of the police were confirmed. In the remote stretch of rural farmland, a farmer plowing his field noticed what first appeared to be a bundle of clothing. When he looked closer, he discovered the decomposed body of a woman lying on her back and on her chest, a baby. About 40 feet away was a baby rattle shaped like a phone. It was Alex Katrinak's favorite toy. Close to the bodies was a milk bottle and diaper bag with two long blonde hairs still attached. The hairs were microscopically similar to the hairs found on the headrest of Joanne Katrinak's car. Since Joanne Katrinak's jewelry was found with the body, the motive did not appear to be robbery. An autopsy discovered that Joanne Katrinak had been shot once in the face at point-blank range with a 22 caliber pistol. She had also been beaten. Due to the fact that she sustained one gunshot wound to the face and then approximately 19 blows to the head, led us to believe that the gun probably had jammed. And because of the gun jamming, the assailant had to resort to blunt object and beat her about the head. The coroner was not sure whether little Alex died from exposure or had been suffocated. I can remember till this day seeing that infant being lifted off of the abdomen of his mother. Uh, it, it certainly uh, tugged at our heartstrings. You know, it brought a tear to my eye. Uh, and, and if nothing more, it certainly galvanized the law enforcement community and, and got us moving in in uh, the right direction. 
The bodies were found in an extremely remote area, about 15 miles from the Katrinak's home, which told investigators something important about the killer. The victims were on a trail. So after inspecting the scene very thoroughly, we felt very strongly that the person who had the, uh, killed Joanne and Alex Katrinak had been in this area before and, from, and was familiar with these trails. The trails were used by horseback riders, and Andrew Katrinak told police that one of his former girlfriends managed a horse stable, the Silver Shadow Farms, just a mile down the road. Her name was Patricia Rohrer. She and Andrew lived together for two years in the late 1980s, and again briefly in 1991. When they broke up, Patricia Rora moved to North Carolina, had a child with another man, and had been living there ever since. When police questioned Patricia Rora at her home in North Carolina, they immediately noticed that she was a brunette and not blonde. Are you Patricia Rora? Like the hairs found in Joanne's car and on the diaper bag. No. Rora said she was in North Carolina on the day of Joanne's disappearance, 500 miles away from Pennsylvania, and had witnesses to prove it. All right, thanks for your time. Thank you. I think she gave us something like four or five alibis as to where she was at. Uh, one, she was at a uh, private club. One, uh, she was out buying feed for horses. Uh, one, she was at a tanning salon. But Andrew Katrinak had another surprise for investigators. He remembered that Patricia Rora called his home just three days before his wife and son disappeared. Hello? Joanne answered the phone. Hello? And when Patricia Rora identified herself, the two argued. Look, Andy has told you to stop calling here. We have a baby now. We're happy together. Just leave us alone. Stop calling here. Patricia Rora denied making that call, and her home telephone records confirmed her story. With brunette hair, an alibi, and no evidence she called the Katrinak's home, investigators feared they had hit a dead end. Investigators wanted to know as accurately as possible when Joanne and Alex Katrinak were killed. Although the bodies were discovered four months after they disappeared, it wasn't clear how long the bodies had been in the field. The bodies contained evidence of insect activity, and police asked Dr. K. Jun Kim, a forensic entomologist at Pennsylvania State University, for an analysis of what the insect activity revealed about the time of death. This case was rather complicated because two bodies involved, two victims involved. And the same time that uh, a body were laying on the uh, uh, ground in the wild in the wintertime. And uh, so that there are a different waves of uh, insects attack, insect invasions to the body. First, Dr. Kim found the hard outer shell of the Califera lavidia. This species of blowfly had progressed to its final stage of development. Dr. Kim also found another species, Sinomyopsis cadaverina, that was just beginning its third and final stage of development. 
these two factors told Dr. Kim that the bodies had been in the field for at least 51 days since early February. And when Dr. Kim looked at the local weather conditions, he also noticed another important piece of information. Between December 21st and the 28th, local temperatures were unseasonably warm, reaching 50 degrees, the perfect conditions for these two species to mate and lay eggs. Investigators now knew that the bodies had not been placed in the field recently. They were there since February and possibly as early as December, the time of the abduction. Patricia Rohr's telephone records revealed that she made long distance telephone calls from home almost every day. But there were no calls made between December 11th and the 16th, suggesting she was not in North Carolina when Joanne Katranak and her son were abducted. Patricia said she was at the Cowboys nightclub in North Carolina on the night of the abduction. A state law requires all patrons of the club to sign in, but Patricia Rohrer was not signed in on that date. Patricia Rohrer also denied owning a 22 caliber pistol and the search of her home turned up nothing. But one of her old boyfriends contradicted her. He told police, Patricia Rohrer owned a 22 caliber chrome-plated semi-automatic weapon like this one, and said the gun had a unique characteristic. An unusual feature about the gun, he stated, was the fact that you fire one shot out of the gun and the gun would jam. You couldn't fire a second shot. Well, that really caught our attention, of course. But police still had the problem with the blonde hair found at the scene and in the victim's car, since Patricia Rohrer was a brunette. We were sitting in our office one day, and we were discussing how could we determine what color Patricia Rohrer's hair was at the time of the murder. And we both agreed that the only way to do that was to try to obtain a picture of her in and around the time of the murder. After a little digging, police discovered that Patricia Rohrer competed in a horse show in Guthrie, Oklahoma in December of 1994 and had won a prize at the competition. The pictures of the winners that day showed Patricia Rohrer with bleached blonde hair. The photo was taken just 11 days before Joanne and Alex Katranak disappeared. But prosecutors needed more than just a photograph they needed to know for certain whether the blonde hair at the crime scene belonged to Patricia Rohrer. The blonde hairs found on the diaper bag next to Joanne Katranak's body and in her car did not contain enough root material for traditional DNA testing. Investigators' only hope was to try a new type of DNA test, one that had never been admitted into evidence in a Pennsylvania trial, something called mitochondrial DNA. Traditional DNA testing analyzes the nucleus of the cell, found in abundance in bodily fluids and tissue. But outside of the cell nucleus are what are known as mitochondria, cells that can be identified, although not as precisely as in traditional DNA testing. Most hairs from crime scenes have 
very, very little amounts of DNA. However, there's more mitochondrial DNA in those hairs. There's more copies of mitochondrial DNA in those hairs than nuclear DNA. Therefore, in hairs obtained from crime scenes, most of the time, we can obtain a mitochondrial DNA sequence where we would fail with nuclear DNA analysis. To identify the DNA sequence, a PCR test was conducted, and the mitochondrial DNA sequences from the blonde hair matched Patricia Rohrer's DNA profile. This was enough to convince prosecutors that Patricia Rohrer was at the crime scene and inside Joanne Katranak's car. Patricia Rohrer was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Prosecutors believe that Patricia Rohrer was in Pennsylvania and not North Carolina when she called for Andrew Katranak. But when Joanne answered the phone, Patricia's hopes of meeting Andrew for old time's sake were quickly dashed. We have a baby now. We're happy together. Just leave us alone. Stop calling here. Hello? And when Joanne hung up, prosecutors believe Rora got angry and sought revenge. For the next three days, Rora stalked the Katranak's home to observe Joanne's daily routine. On December 15th, sometime after 1 p.m., Patricia Rora broke into the Katranak's basement and overheard Joanne on the telephone with her mother-in-law. We're about ready to leave, okay? Bye. When Rora heard Katranak was leaving, she decided to wait for them outside in the alley and cut the telephone line to prevent any further calls. At gunpoint, Patricia Rora forced Joanne into her car, ordering her to drive to the remote farmland. No! Patricia Rohrer fired a single shot into Joanne Katranak, and when the pistol jammed, beat her to death. The baby was left on his mother's chest. The murder weapon was never found. But Patricia Rora left two bleached blonde hairs at the crime scene and some hair stained with the victim's blood in Joanne's car as she drove it back to town. At the trial, Patricia Rora's defense team scoffed at the notion that an alleged argument she had with Joanne Katranak was a believable motive for murder. And the defense was saying, come on, that can't be a motive. Normal people don't act like that, and he was right. Normal people don't act like that, but this particular person was not normal and acted just that way. After two hours of deliberation, the jury found Patricia Rohrer guilty of both murders, and she was sentenced to life in prison. She's going to have to live with what she did. And um, I hope her life isn't happy, because mine isn't. I tried to get on with my life. And um, I've made some, you know, strides. But um, you never, ever get over the loss of a child or a grandchild. The case was a first in the state of Pennsylvania and was only the third time in the United States that a conviction was secured with mitochondrial DNA. 
This case is a classic example of the power of mitochondrial DNA. The only forensic evidence obtained in this case really were the three hairs from the crime scene. Three hairs that, unless you look very hard for, you might very easily pass over. I'd have to say this, that in, in all my years in law enforcement, the Katrinak investigation is one of the, the finest pieces of police work that I've, I've had the pleasure of being involved in. There were many unique challenges to this investigation. Uh, the technology that we employed in, in uh, the development of at least one key piece of forensic evidence was literally 21st century technology in the 20th century.